this is a lecture for the chapter in women and empowerment titled eco feminism in the indian context and i'm going to be uh, sort of beginning with trying to understand what the term eco feminism actually means eco feminism is a combination of two words ecology the study of ecology and feminism what feminism is is something that we have discussed at length in the past three or four uh, discussion lectures that i have already posted here and through the class discussions that we have had uh, whatever classes we were able to have before uh, you know the university and the rest of the world actually shut down so um, i'm not going to go into uh, a detailed discussion of what feminism is i'm just going to talk about what the connection between these two is now in the 1960s and 70s especially uh, a lot of feminists started uh, sort of looking at the possible relationship between ecology which is the study of how the environmental systems the atmosphere the um, you know the the chain of biology living beings and so on and so forth and how the relationship between all of the living organisms as a as a system as a holistic sort of system how that can be sort of understood in a feminist kind of context the reason why this connection sort of comes up and in it makes sense uh, that uh, these two things could be studied in conjunction so that both e- both the understanding of ecology as well as of feminism can actually be sort of furthered and it can become better is because uh, traditionally in patriarchy uh, fem- feminism is usually associated with an articulated in terms of nature so nature is called mother nature and um, women are usually associated with the same kind of metaphors the same kind of values the same kind of characteristics which men usually associate with nature nature is also nurturing it's uh, you know it's it, it gives nutrition to us it gives it gives everything to us it doesn't ask for anything in return and seriously how na- how can nature possibly ask for anything in return right except to show that what we are doing with nature is actually harmful for it uh but there's a whole discourse around it that we are going to try to uncover throughout this lecture so in that sense that that the the connection between women and between ecology already exists and that is the connection that a lot of feminists um sort of work with to try to understand why women should be associated with nature and if that is so then um you know how uh, that kind of connection which is seen as natural but it's naturalized in the sense that there's nothing uh, which is that there's nothing natural about this connection between femininity and between nature but uh, but that's the way that we understand both women as well as nature um and that basically um in in one way eco feminists look at it as a representation of or as an example of how uh the power hierarchy um on the basis of which patriarchy actually functions and by power hierarchy i mean uh, that symbolically there are you know masculinity has more power it has more authority it is seen as natural authority uh, stemming out of the natural characteristics of men and women but we've talked about it in earlier classes as to how this kind of a difference or this kind of a natural seeming um, you know um, power hierarchy in which men have more power they have more authority they're seen as more reliable they're seen as more rational as more scientific all of these are actually social constructs there's nothing biological or nothing quote unquote natural about it and especially in this chapter nature or natural they have different connotations it just it, it doesn't just mean that you know somebody's inherent temperament or somebody's inherent um personality as we usually associate that term um, you know in popular usage 
uh, but it actually means something which is associated with the actual nature, right? With trees, with plants, with the life and with the ecological system with, with, uh, within which all of us living beings, living and non-living things actually live and the relationship that all of these things actually have, right? So in that sense, patriarchy uh, has control or has authority over both femininity as well as over nature, right? So men decide or patriarchy sort of decides how to use nature best for our advantage, how to use nature as a commodity so that most, more and more money can actually be made. So in that sense, feminists have been equating the way in which men have been on patriarchy, actually, masculinity, has been, uh, you know, subordinating and creating a sense of hierarchy in their relationship, both with women as well as with nature. So in that sense, nature and women sort of do stand together. Agar aap patriarchy ka agar aap hierarchy dekhe, patriarchy mein kya zyada important hai, kya kam important hai, then, uh, you know, masculinity is at the top and nature and femininity are definitely subservient to subordinate to patriarchy. Um, and masculinity consequently. So that is the connection that a lot of eco-feminists have made apart from, you know, sort of taking the argument further and much, much further actually. So those are the kind of arguments that we are going to be looking at. Uh, the movement which is now or which we now understand as eco-feminism, it started in the mid-1970s and this was around the same time when the second wave of feminism was sort of coming about, if you can use that sort of verb, uh, phrase for uh, what was happening at the time. We've talked about the second wave of feminism in one of the introductory chapters when, when I was talking about Kate Millett and Betty Friedan's uh, book, Sexual Politics and uh, uh, the Feminine Mystique, um, respectively. And so please go back to that chapter and then look at what the second wave of feminism is about. But in the context of this particular argument also, if you look at the kind of things that the second wave of feminism was talking about, the kind of ideological and the kind of metaphoric even representations that they were trying to deconstruct, that they were trying to understand and see why these kind of uh, you know ideas and constructs and representations were coming about. It becomes very interesting because the second wave of feminism was predicated on or it was based on the fundamental existential crises that women were facing everywhere and we talked about this but I'm just going to repeat this one aspect of it here which is that during the world wars because a lot of men died so women were encouraged to go out and then start working but then what happened was that after the world wars ended in the 1940s right throughout that time when the world wars ended and then by the 1970s the first post-World War male generation started going to work because they were in their early 20s, late 20s or even 30s, right? So there were enough men who could then go back to doing the economic, intellectual, scientific and technical work that women were encouraged to do during the World Wars. So during the World Wars, a lot of women were being told you're good enough, you're intelligent enough, you're capable enough to do the things that men were doing, you should go out and prove yourself. And then suddenly in the 1970s, 60s and 70s, there's this whole wave of, you know, sort of social opinion, which came about, especially in the West, because, you know, in the in the Asia's, the impact of the world wars was very, very secondary. Our armies, even in India, our armies were involved in the world wars, but a very small portion of our armies and that too, um, you know, they represented the British. 
right? So that was a sort of a secondary um, effect that our economies had because of the world wars. The Europe faced it firsthand. So uh, because of that, in the 1970s, the social opinion then again came back to what it what it had been for about 2,000 years, which was that um, you know the best place for a woman to be is in the kitchen or as a housewife and that's where they should actually find their happiness because the greatest happiness that a woman can have is to enjoy motherhood, is to enjoy domesticity because women are fragile, they're emotional, they're, you know, naturally they're inclined towards domestic work rather than intellectual or economic work and as I talked about it uh, in the earlier lectures also, it's it, you know, even domestic work is not a problem. It is work that needs to be done. Somebody needs to do it. Women can do it. Men can do it. The problem occurs. The problem, uh, you know, is basically created at the level of politics. When work becomes politicized, when work becomes designated to one particular gender or one particular class, that's when the problem actually begins. However, coming back to what this did, what this sort of an existential crisis, what this um, what this emotional crisis actually did was that when Betty Friedan and when Kate Millett started looking at what this kind of going back of or of uh, you know encouraging women to go back to domesticity or the virtues of femininity, what this was doing to women in the 1960s and 1970s, and they conducted extensive research about this was that a lot of women were not happy with just staying at home. But they couldn't come out and talk about it in the open because everybody told them they were brought up uh, on the principles of necessarily trying to find their happiness in these kind of feminine spaces. So they thought that they felt something else. But they, at the same time, they felt this sort of a moral conflict where they thought that I am supposed to be happy doing these kind of things. I am supposed to be happy being the woman and being feminine and doing all of these things for my family. And it's a good thing and it's required, right? Nutritious, healthy food and uh, maintaining a clean house. All of those things are very important. So it isn't as if those are not valuable contributions. They are valuable contributions, but at the same time, for women to be told that they can do only this and nothing else, and they're naturally inclined to do this, so they should enjoy this, created this kind of a conflict in a lot of women. And that's the kind of conflict that brought about the sort of second wave of feminism when women started talking about how um, you know the impact of patriarchy is not just in relegating women to a subhuman level right like it did uh, when Mary Wollstonecraft was writing in the 18th century and in the 19th century later on there were a lot of other feminists who were also talking about it but it's also it, it's much more deep-rooted it's much more psychological and it functions at a lot of different, you know, in a lot of different aspects. And those aspects need to be studied. What women choose to do with their lives once they are aware of the ways in which they are harassed or in, in which this hegemony sort of operates, that's up to them. But at least uh, it, it is possible to make them aware of the way in which patriarchy as a system functions. So that was one of the most important aspects of the second wave of feminism. So around that time, when women were trying to sort of understand, when feminists were trying to understand how oppression functions at a psychological, deep-rooted, uh, you know, sort of uh, hidden level in society, it was around the same time when there were a lot of ecological, um, you know, incidents also that happened. One of the most important and one of the most famous ones, one of the most harrowing ones is also, of course, the dropping of the atomic bomb um, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? That is how the World War ended. 
and the kind of consequences that that dropping of the atomic bomb had they were sort of you know people were being born crippled mutilated um, and you know with cancerous cells and with all manners of mutilations in japan even till the 60s 70s and even till today we're sitting in 2020 today and it has been about 75 years since that 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 atomic bomb was dropped right but even till today uh the ecological harm that has been done by the atomic bomb it's not they've not been able to purge it away the land is still fallow the water is still poisoned the cancerous cells everywhere people who live there who are you know who live downstream from these places they have they have a tendency towards developing cancer right then in the 1980s there was this incident called the 3 mile island incident Uh, in Pennsylvania in the US and that is basically uh, what happened was there was a nuclear reactor on the 3 mile island it's an island but there was a nuclear reactor there for uh, creating electricity for it, uh, for creating power and I, i mean that's what uh, it was overtly for um, and there was a radiation leak right so one of the reactors nuclear reactors faced a partial meltdown because of which there was a radiation leak and this happened in 1979 and it was uh, usually for uh, for nuclear nuclear sort of incidents it's a seven point scale which is usually used right and this incident was considered to be so severe and so serious that it was uh, considered to be a five pointer on that scale of seven so it was pretty high it was pretty serious right and that's when people feminists and even environmentalists they started talking about why we are taking the environment so lightly why are we not more serious about the kind of harm that we are doing and what could be the long term ramifications of these kind of things so a lot of feminists came together and they said you know what patriarchy is fairly condescending and patriarchy takes both women and nature for granted so if we have to understand the effect that patriarchy has on the society as a whole then we have to or we can actually look at both feminism and uh, ecology and the study of ecology ecological studies together and then we can sort of maybe look at and we can create like this holistic argument wherein uh, people can perhaps look at it more clearly that the the, the attitude that patriarchy has it's much more far reaching than just this difference of genders right it is it extends to other aspects of human life as well not just a social ordering of gender but also ecology and environment and if environment is harmed and if we have this sort of callous uh, you know attitude towards the environment um, then really how are we going to survive at all right uh, all of these things that i'm talking about by the way are part of the word document that i have already sent to the college i can send it to the group as well if you guys uh, can't find it on the college website if you need it please let me know only then i will send it across anyway uh, coming to the third point in the word document and i'm I, i'm following the same logical order of argument that i have followed in the document as well so please take a uh, read the chapter first and then look at the document and then um, you know listen to the lecture simultaneously i think it will make sense then so feminists also believed that this idea of the commercialization of commodities and the militarization of society that was another problem um in in the way that patriarchy actually conducts business and when i say business i mean specifically the capitalist business right how capitalism functions is that and and for those of you studying maybe history or political science i think uh, if you have read anything about marx uh, this is one problem that marx also associates with capitalism 
what it does is that it takes away all the skill that is required to create any commodity whether it is um, you know whether it is packaging food like dal like rice like wheat and then selling it to the consumers or it is uh, a skill based artisanal work like making shoes making clothes specialized kind of clothes and so on and so forth and what it replaces what capitalism replaces this kind of skill that is required to create anything is uh, with a certain kind of a distance that both the producer and the consumer have with the thing or the product or the commodity that they are actually creating and what it means for us as consumers is that uh, a lot of us actually we don't even think about where things actually come from we think that food is grown in stacks in supermarkets you go to the supermarket you buy food and you believe everything that is you know sort of written on the package we look at food not as a source of nutrition now we look at food as um, as as a matter of either habit or in a very very capitalist manner we look at food as a as as a symbol of status so if we have to enjoy we'll go to a place which is expensive where uh, where the setting is very nice where you can take very nice pictures where the food looks very pretty but we don't ask whether the food that you get at all of these expensive places is actually the best kind of food that is available so we don't eat the food uh, or we don't choose our food on the basis of the nutrition that it gives which is the actual biological function which is the emotional connect that people can and should have with food we look at food as a commodity that can be bought that can be sold and the usual kind of ideology that works everywhere in capitalism which is that if it's expensive it must be good works also for food right so uh, in in that sense there is a commercialization of all manners of commodities we don't look at clothes as something that uh, you know that is solely required to hide certain portions of your body now food uh, now now clothes have become politicized the kind of things that we use now are not necessarily the things that we need the most If you look at advertising, for example, right? Advertising—the uh, most advertisements are for things that you don't actually need, but you end up spending the most amount of money on, right? Um, um, Semi-precious metals or stones is a different thing, but um, what you buy more or the things that you have most uh, advertisements for, like Coca-Cola, um, like other aerated drinks, um, like uh, telephones, like you know other. items of technology which are things that you need of course they make your life easier but that's exactly what it is the essentials of life are basic food good quality food and clothes and uh, you can get those or you would buy those even without them being you know advertised so advertisement in that sense is a commercialization of all the commodities that we end up buying and a lot of the things and a lot of the decisions that we make about how and where we are going to spend our money are based on how well commodities are commercialized and advertised right so the way that we look at the world around us and the things that nature gives to us like food like clothes uh you know the source of all of our requirements is basically nature but we don't look at nature uh, as being directly associated with all of our needs and we look at our own needs solely in terms of commodities and that's a slightly disjointed and um, you know sort of unhealthy way of looking at things most of us don't know how um you know how things are grown what agricultural processes are if our families are related um you know with the with if anybody in the family is 
an agriculturist or if they are farmers, then that's a different thing. But for most of us, it's something that happens somewhere in the background of our consciousness and we don't care about what that does. We don't care about the effects that modern technology and modern agriculture has on the earth in which, uh, you know, on the earth or on the ecology, the general surroundings of, uh, you know, of the farming land, all the DDT and all the pesticide which kills the germs, but it also kills a lot of good nutrients in the food, in the environment. And that effect that it, that, you know, that effect that chemicals have, man-introduced chemicals have on the ecological space is something that we're taught not to look at. We don't care about those things because there's, they're not part of our active consciousness. And that, according to eco-feminists, is very, very wrong. Because if we're doing something to the environment, if we're buying things which are made or produced through these kind of harmful processes, then because we are the end consumers who are validating these processes, we are saying that it's okay, we don't care how you're making these things as long as we can get these things for cheap. Right, uh, we are responsible in certain senses from what we're about, you know, um, what we're doing to the environment by just being blind consumers without trying to understand what effect this kind of con con consumerist capitalism has on the world around us. Right, so um, uh, feminists say that in that sense, um, you know, if you look at if you look at the world or if you engage with nature in a feminine manner, in which sense. Uh, women are more nurturing, they're more caring. If you adopt what is usually seen as a weak, uh, you know, as a weak aspect of femininity, which is that they are more sentimental, which is that they are more emotional, then it's actually a good thing. If women are sentimental or, or if the whole humanity becomes sentimental or emotional about how we are treating nature, then the earth will be in a much better state than it is right now, right? So it's going to be a good thing. So the nature... Uh, in, in a non-commercialized system of engagement with nature, right, uh, and living, that is a good thing according to ecofeminism, and that is what we should actually move towards. And so um, we should look at a more sustainable, a more natural way of life rather than moving towards destructive commercialism. And that's a very important point in ecofeminism, right? The other, the next point that ecofeminism actually makes is uh, it says that uh, we should look at uh, the way that we understand a lot of the fundamental terms. They say that uh, what we usually do is that we understand development as a measure of how much money a particular economy or a particular society is making. So if you're making more money like they do in the West, right, then that means that you're more developed, that you're more modern. But where that money is coming from or what, uh, uh, you know, what the side effects of that kind of a money-making mindset is, is something that is usually not engaged with. Uh, in the Western society. So it's actually, instead of a development, instead of development, it's actually what eco-feminists call, it should be looked at as moral development, which is negative development. Because what we do, and we, we do this, right? Every time that we want to talk about whether or not India is making progress, you switch on the news television when they try to compare what the BJP is doing versus what the Congress is doing. They say, oh, look at the, uh, look at the GDP. This is how much money we made when the Congress was in power. And this is how much money we are making now that the BJP is in power and so on and so forth. 
that's the only way that we know how to measure something like development so ecofeminists say that we have to actually change the parameters which we have been using traditionally for understanding words like development and until unless we do that we should involve development also to talk about um you know the effect that our lives and our economies and our uh, industries and our ways of life have on nature as well as on other aspects or other beings in nature and that's the only way in which we can actually go forward otherwise we're just destroying earth right so um, another very interesting uh, association that they make is the association of um, development or this kind of patriarchal development with colonialism for those of you who are in political science they would know this off hand for sure but even for the rest of you because we are in india and india was colonized for a very long time in hindi it's called samrajyavad so colonialism is 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 that sort of political and economic system where uh, which actually started with the industrial revolution in europe in the 17th century onwards so um industries developed and because of the industry because of the scientific and technological development the industry started making things at a much larger scale they were making more things more commodities more of everything as compared to earlier when uh, you know people were making these things by hand whether they were shoes clothes soap glasses mirrors everything was they were able to produce the west was able to produce it at a much higher scale of a much better and equal sort of quality everything that was everything that came out of the factory was of the same quality it was possible to monitor those kind of things right so um once they started making things at such a higher uh, you know um, scale um, the domestic market was saturated people bought everything that they needed and then still they had more capacity to produce things then they started looking at markets outside so the traders from western countries went to places like africa to asia to china to japan and places in south asia other places in latin america and then they tried selling their products there so in that sense um you know sort of this kind of a technological development became a validation for became an excuse for colonialism if they controlled the places like india where they were trying to sell their products they could sell it at any price they could stop the indian handicrafts and the indian indigenous products from being made altogether so that when if people needed things they had to necessarily buy it from the western industries and their factories right um, for some of you who might be interested you you can actually read up there's a lot of nationalist indian nationalist literature which talks about this kind of emotional um sorry this kind of uh, you know economical usurpation and this aspect of colonialism neel darpan is a very very famous play which is written about this off the top of my head i can think of that uh it's a it's it's a wonderful wonderful text you can definitely go back and look at it you have a little bit of time now but anyway so colonialism is also associated or colonization is also associated with development in that sense the western countries developed scientifically technologically economically and so they started colonizing other places right so that's another thing that eco feminists say when your only goal when the only goal of your economy is uh you know uh is to make more and more money even something as inhuman as colonialism becomes justified or there are ways 
of so called justifying it right to yourself and to the rest of the world and not look at the actual reality of what it does to people so you know uh, that only that that kind of greed only fosters more greed rather than a mutually sustainable relationship that women can have with nature and with natural economy right so in that sense um you know in the long run these kind of attitudes will definitely be harmful for the society and i mean you know if there is no nature uh, humanity will definitely not survive there is no alternate to nature uh, technology can't really do the things that nature does and even if they can um, the loss is going to be irreparable so in that sense eco feminists say that we should definitely redefine relook at and take an alternate perspective try to understand words like development like progress science economy technology all of these things we should try to take a look at them from a different perspective not what we've been taught to do and in that sense maybe we'll we will be able to really understand how much damage we've done right uh, and this is a quotation i'm i'm going to read out a quotation in this respect uh, it is on page number 159 in your book a development paradigm implemented through enclosures privatization corporate piracy marginal marginalization and violence is more accurate it is characterized as mal development and is in inexorably dragging the world down a path of self destruction right and uh, it's called violent not just because violence is not just the physical violence that people perpetrate uh over one another violence is also anything that is harmful violence is also psychological but humans are also what humans are doing to nature that is also a kind of violence and until unless we have the um, you know until unless we can actually uh, we have the courage to accept it as violence we will not be able to correct the harm that we've already done to nature um and then you know there is um, there is this whole idea of if we keep on saying that the women's way of doing agriculture or of engaging with nature is better then one argument which supports this kind of an assertion or this statement is the fact that for for agricultural economies like india has been for uh, for for a large portion of our history uh it still as is still a you know basically an agricultural economy um in agricultural families except in zamindar like big families where there are a lot of you know there are a lot of servants where people can afford a lot of servants for most of the agricultural families uh women have been active part participants in growing things and even when they don't really grow things for selling in a lot of rural areas and india is largely a rural economy so in a lot of the rural areas um there are a lot of women who actually grow um a lot of vegetables garden vegetables some grains some greens right they grow a lot of things for personal consumption so a lot of families have their own backyard gardens uh, if you guys have uh, families or if you know of people who live in smaller towns especially villages um, you would know that this is actually true so for women who do some sort of agriculture on their own right um, usually the kind of practice that and this is an assertion that eco feminists make and i um, and i think it proves well in the indian context a lot of women uh, the kind of agriculture that they practice is called sustainable agriculture 
so because they only have this small piece of land in which they have to sow and they have to reap the things again and again year after year season after season if they don't take care of the land they are not going to be able to plant anything um later on so they are very careful in maintaining a particular quality of land and looking after the land right similarly the quality of the food is very important because they know that they are going to eat it themselves it is sustainable and recyclable also because in a lot of cases uh women or small farmers also uh they use the seeds from one harvest for the next harvest so if the quality of this harvest is not good the quality of the next harvest is also going to be bad because bad harvest is going to get bad seeds and bad seeds are going to lead to uh, the next harvest also not being good enough so in that sense because the cycle is repeated it is it is you know so one thing is connected with another thing so uh, they have to maintain a certain level or a certain quality so it's sustainable this is a this is called sustainable economy but what happens when this the same agricultural economy is commercialized is that to make vegetables easy to eat to uh, to make watermelon for example more desirable and more fashionable now you have watermelons uh, which have no seed at all so it's it's no problem in eating a watermelon but think about it if there are no seeds in the watermelon how are you going to plant the next uh, harvest so what they do is that they take the seeds the industries they take the seeds they modify those seeds so that once you've put in a crop once you've har- harvested a crop you have to necessarily go to the market to buy seeds so seed markets in that sense they are a representation of or they they are a um, they are a symptom of a commercialization of agriculture and that's just one example you know um uh, in that sense uh, commercialization of agriculture if you try to read it up a little bit more uh, you will find many 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 such examples the what happens when you introduce chemicals what happens when you introduce uh, technology um, into agriculture it makes agriculture less sustainable so it says the goal of this kind of agriculture is overtly and statedly they say that it's so that everybody will have food but people have always had food even when people were only growing their own food even at that time right uh, people always had food and now also even with all of these measures we have not been able to cure global hunger uh, because the commercialization of things means that if somebody is not paying they don't get the commodity so for a large portion of people very very poor people if they don't have money they're not going to get food irrespective of how much food you uh, produce so much food goes waste uh, becomes waste in go downs and that's only because even though there are poor people who can eat it but it goes to waste because they can't buy it because the only way that we look at food now or the economy of agriculture is through this process of or through the structure of through the mirrors and glasses of uh, commercialization and consumerism right so uh, in that sense uh, agriculture is usually uh, the agriculture that women um, practice is usually seen as passive agriculture it's seen as non development oriented agriculture because you can't make money out of it and the only way that we understand the term development is again only and only which gets money 
but eco-feminists also believe that you know that it it creates a sort of a symbiotic and symbiotic is a mutually beneficial relationship between women and nature so if women are passive in their association with nature then nature becomes the active agent which is a good thing always for humans because if nature is active nature does not skimp in um, giving things to or being bountiful to humans right uh, to the traditional agricultural systems uh, were sort of based on this kind of an inclusion of women also and men also it was based on diversity the same land could be used for growing a lot of different things a lot of small things a lot of different kinds of crops also nowadays huge tracts of land uh, are used only to buy one kind of um, you know crop and because of the chemicals that are used the land becomes inaccessible for any other kind of crop also it becomes fallow for one year two year two seasons and so on and so forth right traditional agricultural systems were also seen as women centric i've already talked about why but they were also nature friendly right um, they are of course diametrically opposite to the way that men uh, and here men basically means a patriarchal system uh, or masculinity how they do agriculture is uh, to be driven solely by profit and according to the um, and i'm just reading out all of these things from the way that they've been talked about on page number 157 in the text these are things that you should definitely remember women centric agricultural methods are uh, according to the text they're done on a small scale i've talked about why and how uh, they use natural resources like soil water biodiversity these are all resources which are conserved and renewed season after season right it's cyclical process i just talked about it their dependence on fuel, fossil fuels and of and on chemicals is minimal it's also to a very large extent because women don't have access either to chemicals or to the knowledge or information about how to use chemicals so they usually try to limit themselves to natural means which are of course always better right natural fertilizers are used much more than chemical fertilizers natural fertilizers are green manure composed from farm waste and so on and so forth so again farm waste is not left to rot but it's put to good use nutritional use uh then the last point is there is a lot of diversity integration and nutrition these are the main considerations of these farmers right we've talked about how nutrition is also something that um consumerist agriculture or capitalist agriculture definitely does not look at right um now a lot of uh, there are a lot of very prominent ecofeminists one of them and the most important of them is vandana shiva i shared her a small clip of one of her interviews in the whatsapp group as well you should definitely look at a lot of uh, of her other interviews what she talks about is fairly simple it's fairly accessible but it's also it, it i mean it's well meaning so vandana shiva also believes that women not only continue to be the world's original food producers like we've just talked about but also their their model of agriculture is also based on a natural system of renewability we have talked about it the men's scientific method of agriculture has tampered with the natural and ecological balance and this masculine mode of agriculture leads to dangers like global warming so these things are connected and you we we've sort of seen what happens with global warming 
so when women uh, farm or they participate in agriculture they definitely keep in mind the quality of the produce and the quality of the soil as it needs to be the source of the next crop we've talked about this with ben the focus is only on producing as much as is possible even if it comes at the cost of soil or the quality of the food product also and hence the cases of adulterated food are higher only when men are trying to hike up the profits and think about nothing else there's the only way there's the only reason why you would adulterate food right food is something that makes up people what you eat is literally essentially what you become if you eat bad food your body is unhealthy if you eat good food your body is healthy so food is the only thing that is sort of the basic constituent of who we are and yet for profit uh, masculine or patriarchal agriculture doesn't um, doesn't Uh, doesn't hesitate in poisoning the food that people are eating also as long as they can make money and this is the reason why according to ecofeminists like vandana shiva women centric farming does not need seeds or fertilizers from outside of the natural system of rotation of crops but commercialized agricultural agricultural system needs to buy seeds and this is called seed conservation the way that women conserve seeds from one harvest to be used for the next harvest that is called seed conservation and that's very important the next issue that the um, that the lesson talks about is called biotechnology vandana shiva claims uh, that the that the idea that biotechnology and genetically engineered crops are the only way that the world's population can be fed is actually not true i just talked about it uh, you know 2 3 minutes ago the long lasting damage that they cause to the ecosystem is irreparable and the problem is that because we are so uh, we are so happy that you know science is helping us solve the food problem of the world and it's making the world a better place most of us don't even engage with the problems that this kind of genetic engineering of food actually produces jab aap genetically modified khana khate hain to usse aapke liye jo problem hoti hai aur usse environment mein jo problem hoti hai we don't usually talk about it we don't usually engage with those problems at all now for those of you who are interested you should definitely look at this particular idea genetically modified crops are banned in india so there was bt brinjal a lot of years ago they tried bringing bt bt brinjal and i think they tried to introduce um, some um, some genetically modified uh, potato but then it was taken back but that's not the case with most of the world in the in in um, in a large number of countries um you know genetically modified crops are used fairly freely but their harmful effects are not talked about only and only the supposed increase in food production is talked about and with this supposed and they say that the increase in the food production is going to help feed millions of more people and yet are they fed no there are still a millions and millions who are still poor who still die of hunger so we don't talk about why uh, this increased food production does not lead to what it claims to do at the beginning of the process so we don't question these kind of ideas because whatever science does we believe it blindly right but according to vandana shiva the alternate of the small scale locally sourced grown sustained agricultural practiced by women it's much more sustainable in comparison i mean of course it would be right it makes sense it's it seems common sensical and if you, you and in just if you look at it from the other position um you know as in if you look at it from the other perspective and what uh, what happens to women uh, women's condition in india is bad precisely because they don't have land rights right so land is bad 
because women don't have access to agricultural processes land rights are taken and the condition of women is also bad because they don't have access to land rights right indian economy has been an agricultural economy a land based economy for a very long time and we still are and a land based economy for those of you who've read anything in economics or anything about it in economics would know that the essential value or the essential um, sort of you know um, a commodity of value in a land based economy is land so people who have more land will have more money in capitalist societies people who have more industries have more uh, money and they have more power as well but we are still an agriculture based economy which means we are a land based economy so people who have more land will have more power yeah metaphorical power they will also have more money but women legally do not have access to land and whatever else the new laws which have been passed because of which women can inherit their parents land can mean right so the official version of whatever land rights is and those laws are also fairly recent which say that women can inherit uh, you know land what is important is that for most of the women even if they have rights to their own land even if they have rights to the family's land they don't have the social permission to use that land that land is still operated by metaphorically owned by the nearest male counterpart their husbands or their brothers or their sons right women don't actually have any land rights and this according to eco feminists is a very important marker of power hierarchy because the one who owns land also owns the food that is grown on it and the profit also that is generated by the produce so even if women have the land land deed agar kisi uh, women ke naam pe hai to bhi that land uske sath kya karna hai uske upar khet banane hain uske upar kheti karni hai uske upar ghar banane hain gharon ko rent pe dena hai all of those decisions are taken by men and when men take those decisions when they operate the business of agriculture or of economy then they claim the rights to the proceeds or the profit that comes from that practice of course right so women don't have access either to the food for which they have labored on the land even in agricultural families when the husband and the wife work equally on the land when they sell the food the money still goes to the husband it does not come to the wife right even if she is worked equally for it um you know so um they cannot possibly make any profit which means that they can never have economic freedom jab legally bhi unke paas jab resources hote hain even then they cannot have economic freedom so in traditional systems also systems of agriculture are sustained on the participation of the whole family the women's labor is also very important and very crucial to the agricultural processes and hence there's a lot of value to it so in agricultural families women are expected after they get married to work in the fields just like men so it isn't as if their uh, labor is not required for the production of the economic uh, you know for the economy of the family for to be able to earn money the participation of women is also equally important but at the same time right uh, the uh, the effects of the economic profits from that uh, participation of labor is not given to them but when agriculture is commercialized then women's labor is also not required so the machines do the extra work and women are pushed further and further into the house into the domestic space and they can't even claim that the work that they do 
is of any value at all so in all cases the way the traditionally patriarchy looks at women within the context of agriculture it is problematic women are marginalized women are or femininity is actually harassed right uh, but the connection that women usually have with food is often seen as an emotional connect i actually started with that right mothers are projected as mothers are understood as nurturers because they provide food and through food they provide the system of nourishment for the whole family they make good home cooked food which provides strength which provides uh, you know nurture uh, and nourishment and nutrients to the whole family it is of course important but at the same time with the commercialization of food and food products uh, the way that we understand food is also changed now this is something that we've already talked about so i'm not going to be talking about it any further i've i've discussed this in the word document as well um the one thing that i do want to talk about it is how this sort of a change in how we understand both food as well as um you know technology and development how this kind of change has actually come about is given or is also a part of the chapter so i'm just going to discuss it very very briefly in the 19th century uh, a lot of western philosophers like francis bacon they um they said the development if you want to understand what development is it has to be aligned with science and that's inevitable and in the 20th century what happened was and if you look at how colonialism uh, sort of um you know progressed it was aligned with science right science nahi hota to industries nahi bante better machinery nahi banti better machinery nahi banti to better arms nahi bante better arms nahi bante then the west or the europe would not have had that sort of technological edge over people in africa people in asia so that when they came here and when they tried to forcibly take over the economic and the political systems they would not have had the advantage that at one point in time china had um even till the 18th century and the 19th century the chinese especially till the 18th century chinese firearms and their use of gunpowder for cannons was the best in the world which is one of the reasons why china has never really been uh, you know colonized not by the west and the west really tried like they tried everywhere else right um, but we don't really talk about it because we only talk about the west because they are the ones who write our histories but anyway coming back to what we're talking about so in that sense uh, in the 20th century also in the world wars uh, those countries which had better science and better technologies they were the ones who won right america had the atomic bomb so it was able to put a stop with one act of dropping a bomb it was able to stop the world war which had been going on for the past 30 35 odd years right it's a long long time so um you know and and it sort of pans out so science is usually seen as being uh, directly aligned with development and um, and and science does not take ecology into um into into account because science what usually science does is that science is seen as being geared towards overtaking or mastering nature we can create things which can take over or which can control nature we can build ships which can uh, which can withstand the worst of the um, you know of the storms we can um, make aeroplanes with which we can defy gravity which we can fly like nature and so on and so forth right shiva actually says as repercussions of the destruction of ecological and traditional knowledge systems and agriculture how to do agriculture in a sustainable way that's a system of knowledge that women had access to but now with the coming of chemicals with the coming of technology in agriculture women don't have the knowledge of how to use these things 
बिकॉज वीमेन आर यूजली नॉट अलाइंड विथ और वीमेन आर नॉट अलाउड टू और वीमेन आर टोल्ड सिंपली सिंस द टाइम दे आर यंग दे आर टोल्ड साइंस तो तुम्हारी समझ में नहीं आएगी तुम्हें होम साइंस समझ में आएगी बट होम साइंस के आगे कोई साइंस और समझ नहीं आएगी साइंस तो लड़कों के पढ़ने की चीज़ होती है टेक्नोलॉजी मशीनरी लड़कों के पढ़ने की चीज़ होती है तो जब एग्रीकल्चर का कमर्शलाइजेशन हो जाता है तो वीमेन डोंट हैव एक्सेस टू दीज प्रोसेस दीज नॉलेज सिस्टम्स एट ऑल एंड वेन दे डोंट हैव एक्सेस टू दीज नॉलेज सिस्टम्स देन इट बेसिकली इट परपट्रेट्स वॉट शी कॉल्स वायलेंस अगेंस्ट वीमेन वायलेंस अगेंस्ट नेचर बिकॉज वीमेन आर द सॉफ्ट वंस ना तो एटलीस्ट वेन दे सी दैट नेचर इज बींग हार्म एटलीस्ट देट समथिंग विच इज यूजली हाउ इट हैपन्स एंड हाउ इट इज ऑल्सो प्रोजेक्टेड ऑल्सो बट दैट डजेंट हैपन बिकॉज वीमेन डोंट अंडरस्टैंड दीज थिंग्स एनी मोर दे डोंट हैव एक्सेस टू दीज थिंग्स right violence against beneficiaries and sustainers of knowledge is also uh, brought about violence against knowledge itself and violence against knowledge is very very important this basically means that the way that we understand things now hum log knowledge ko hum log information ko kaise samajhte hain aajkal hum log sochte hain science ne jo bol diya wahi true knowledge hai हम लोग उसको असेस करने की कोशिश ही नहीं करते हैं हम लोग ये नहीं सोचने की कोशिश करते हैं कि अगर साइंस इतनी ग्रेट है बिकॉज दे मेड द अटोमिक बॉम्ब then where is the morality in creating things which are going to destroy both the nature and so many people so it is violence against knowledge because knowledge becomes biased and this system of commercialized knowledge teaches us not to question anything and when we stop questioning things we start believing in things which are not right and that according to eco feminists is very very problematic now one of the last things that the chapter actually talks about is um is that shiva vandana shiva also talks about how uh, you know uh, inherently how we understand ourselves is through mythology and even in indian mythology the idea of natural conservation through concepts like duality uh, with ideas like shakti prakriti and by saying that the that the cosmic energy uh, the fundamental energy with which the whole universe was formed this is the basic this is the sort of the vedic basic vedic sort of mythology of how the world actually came about it's called brahmand brahmand is the um, is the primordial egg through, from which the whole world is sort of hatched it comes out of this and is this is the primordial egg right so and, and that's the that's the female way of giving birth in, in in a certain sense and then shakti and prakriti these are cosmic energies and they are feminine right so in that sense Uh, the primeval energy through which the whole universe is formulated that also in indian mythology is feminine so in that sense it's not an it's not such an alien idea at least for indians and in a lot of other mythologies also hai na so um, there is um, there is in a sense um, a domesticated version of how we um how we align ourselves with nature the way that we understand um you know the worshiping of plants like tulsi the reason why we do it is because we understand that nature has plants like tulsi like neem which can cure most of our normal everyday ailments the reason why we worship tulsi is not because of some mythological supernatural power that it has but because of the medicinal power that nature has and that it has given which it has given to us so freely right so we do have that sort of connect with nature and we should go back to that rather than breaking ourselves with a very symbiotic with a mutually beneficial um, you know sort of relationship that humans share with nature the western view of nature is also one of opposition and competition between man and nature and that's what technology also does i just talked about it 
the life giving principle is feminine and that's not just theoretical right uh, it's it's realistic right and violence on nature is concomitant with the marginalization of women that's what the chapter actually ends with so it's as long as there's going to be violence against nature there is going to be violence against women and vice versa because both women and nature they remain marginal they remain on the outskirts they remain outsiders to the industrial and commercialized sort of economy and they don't have access to resources they don't have access to information they don't don't have access to knowledge which pertains to uh, commercialized capitalism and that is what is problematic right so in the past traditional societies and tribal cultures uh, women shared intimate relationships and they still do in tribal places right they share a very intimate relationship with forests water resources and that leads to a very healthy maintenance of the ecological balance in those places gaon mein jahan pe tribal log rehte hain wahan pe air itni saaf kyun hoti hai pani itna saaf kyun hota hai because they only take what they need they are not greedy and they actually care about the nature and worship nature worshiping se hota kya hai when you consider something sacred when you consider a plant or a tree or a source of water like ganga when you consider it sacred truly sacred you are not going to want to pollute it how did the ganga actually get polluted it got polluted because the industries are throwing waste their industrial toxic waste into those places because we don't we've stopped caring for nature because we throw our dead bodies into these rivers without thinking about what it is going to do to the rivers because humans have become selfish only women centric conservation and restoration movements chipko movement was a women centric movement only they are the sustainable uh, you know uh, way forward of engaging with nature it's the only way in which nature can actually be sustained there is no way in which uh, tradition in uh, sorry there is no way in which um, commercial economy or commercial capitalization or consumerism can actually save nature right so that's the basic argument uh, please read the chapter if you have any questions if you have any doubts please get back to me